We've been studying the life of Samuel, or we're studying the life of Saul and, and David uh, in the book of Samuel. And um, last, last, time we were, uh, last time we were in this, David had been thrust out of Saul's uh, palace, and he was literally on the run as a fugitive. He had nothing but the clothes on his back, no money, no weapons, no food, no nothing. Uh, and he's continuing today... Uh, in that, in the hiding and running from Saul, and this David is so David is in the wilderness with no power. Saul is in the, in the in the palace, with all the earthly power in the world behind him, and yet today we're going to see the tables turn, because David has the one thing that really matters. And so, if you would please stand, if you are able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, this is a from Samuel. 22, 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. And now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree at the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. And then answered Doag the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, And that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. And then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? And who is captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all house of my father, for your servant is known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all of your father's house. And so the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hands also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hands put out their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman and child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. 
And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you uh, for your word even the awful realities that it speaks of, Lord. You tell it like it is, and you report history as it really happened, the evil of mankind, what we are capable of, Lord. But not only that, the power that is at work behind that, trying with, with everything it has to shut down your plan of salvation and to end uh, the messianic mission that you had set out to save us and deliver us, Lord. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, that that is not the end of the story. In this, we see the beauty of the gospel. We see how powerful you are, that you are a beyond anything, and that nothing can overpower you, nothing can outmaneuver you, nothing can outsmart you, and that is what we can trust in, Lord. You are our Father, and all of that power that you have, you promise to use to protect us. So we pray, Lord, you would help us to see that, to be sober-minded and understand the reality of the world we live in and the forces of evil that are against us, but never despair in that, knowing that your power is above all and that you are even now protecting us. So help us see that. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus, of who he is, what he's done for us, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones, which is us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, a couple of times as we've been going through this series, uh, we started out, I, when I first started reading through this, I could not help but notice the similarities between Saul and Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars series. There are so many, so many similarities. I would not be surprised if George Lucas stole a whole bunch of that storyline from the from the life of King Saul, or maybe it's just that this is such so indicative of the human condition uh, that this is just how, how it is and what evil is really like in the world. And so in Anakin, Anakin Skywalker, there was all kinds of indicators that he was going to go bad along the way. He was full of anger, full of pride. Uh, he committed some minor atrocities along the way. He was overwhelmed with fear, which is what Master Yoda pointed out. Um, but there was one incident, one incident, where he truly crossed the line and exposed himself to be what he truly was, that he was an agent of evil. And that was when he, as a Jedi Knight, went to the Jedi Temple and annihilated the entire Jedi Order, including all the students. Uh, that was when it was revealed what he had truly become. And today, in this chapter, the same thing happens to Saul. He really outs himself as what it is that he has truly become. Up to this point, you could say he's uh, sinning, he's struggling. He's, he, you could say a lot of things. As a matter, I've been going through wrestling with this passage thinking... You know, God has been, expre- has been 
showering so much mercy and so much grace upon Saul, even in his evil. And I was like, what's up with Saul? Is he, is he one of God's people? Is he not? Is he one of God's people? Is he not? And ultimately, we can never really know that. And thankfully, that's way above any of our pay grades. But what we can see is in this passage that Saul reveals himself to be truly, really a spirit of antichrist. There's a, the Apostle John says in one of his letters, he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming and so now many Antichrists have come. He also says uh, that the spirit of Antichrist is now in the world. And when we hear Antichrist, uh, most of us think immediately of like, you know, maybe some movies you've seen and Antichrist is the man of sin at the end of time who... Uh, is a guy, right? And that's true. There's a man of sin in the Bible. But what John says, what the apostles say, is that there is a spirit of Antichrist throughout the world um, that has been raising its head up. Anti means against. And Christ means Messiah or Jesus. And so there's been all kinds of manifestations of, of, of uh, power, of evil power operating against Jesus and against the plan of salvation in the world, just non-stop stream of Antichrist from Pharaoh to the Sudanese army and everyone in between that has been trying to stop what it is that God is doing in the world. But here's the beautiful thing and here's the wonderful thing about that and what we get to see in living color uh, in this, this breathtaking and beautiful and brutal passage is that even though, even though the spirit of Antichrist is now in the world, God is still in perfect control. And I mean perfect control. Through a quiet power uh, and that is able to comfort and save his people. And that's the big idea of this passage. That even though the spirit of Antichrist is now in the world, uh, God is in perfect control through a quiet power to comfort and save his people. Let's look at that. Let's look at that one part at a time. The first part is, even though the spirit of Antichrist is now in the world, uh, there was this author named David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, but he, in an address that he gave to a university, gave one of the most stunning uh, explanations of what idolatry was really all about. He talked about if you serve anything less than God, it will tear you up. It will eat you up. He talks about how if you worship beauty, you will always feel ugly. If you worship being smart, you will always feel stupid because you'll be afraid that somebody's going to find you out. Someone more beautiful is going to come along and then you won't be the star of the show anymore. And he says this about power. He says, if you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. And that's what's happened to Saul. He's really gone over the edge and he's been reduced to paranoia and, and irrational uh, sin insanity, really. He is convinced, if you, if you listen to that, what I just read closely, he is convinced that all of his top officers are conspiring against him that David has somehow won their hearts and that they are all in a conspiracy against them. He also believes that his own son Jonathan is the ringleader of this conspiracy, prompting David to try to kill him. And as he goes on, 
uh, we, he, he becomes so paranoid, he, act, he believes that the priests, he's so paranoid already, actually, that when he hears the justified response of the priest, uh, that he had nothing to do with it, he just thought they were lying, they must be in conspiracy against me, and that's why he orders them to be killed. Uh, and so, I mean, this is, this is a picture of Saul, like, spinning totally out, but it's, but it's way more than that. It's not just a picture of a, of a sinner reduced into sin, insanity, or seduced by it, but this is now, Saul has become a manifestation of Antichrist in the world. Listen to what he does. He is uh, so paranoid that the priests and everyone are against him that he orders his bodyguard to kill all of the priests of God. And remember, the bodyguard, who was David? David was the captain of the bodyguard. So he's ordering, he's ordering David's men to kill these priests, and they all refuse because they don't believe it, for one. And so he turns to a foreigner, and, and, and he says this. He says, then the king said to Doeg, this is verse 18, you turn and strike the priests, and Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, and then he went on from there, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, do you remember, do you remember chapter 15, what happened in chapter 15? God gave Saul this terrible order to annihilate the Amalekites, who had become so wicked that they were a cancer on every, all civilization. And Saul refused to do that for his own benefit. And yet here, now he has taken that same order, that same complete annihilation order, and pronounced it upon the priests of God, upon the city of the priests at Nob. As ba- and as bad as that is, as bad as Saul has now reversed that order and declared the ban on God's people What's even worse than that is that the spirit of Antichrist in this uh, is, is, is seen that this is a satanic attack on the messianic mission of salvation. This is an attack to annihilate the entire priesthood. And without the priesthood, we, all, would, we, would, uh, we would have lost all of the typology or all the pictures of Jesus and grace in the Mosaic Covenant to lose the Aaronic priesthood at this point in salvation history would have been a major and crazy blow against God's plan of salvation. And so it was beyond just the sin of one man. It was a manifestation of Antichrist in the world. Which should give us, this gives us, I think, I hope this gives us a reality check. I'm reading this book right now, and Issa and I are reading this book called Leadership Pain, <laughs> which talks about how pain is, the, is the, really the growing grounds of God. God grows us in the midst of our pain. And one of the things the book says is that we, we tend to think that, what, that, that everything should be easy, that God's blessing means that everything's easy and right and perfect in the world, uh, and then when we set our expectations up for that, and it's not, we become, we can become discouraged. And um, what this is telling us is that evil is constantly working 
constantly working to shut down the mission of the church, both from inside the church and from outside the church. And that causes us fear and anxiety, I think more than we admit. Um, Think about it. Think about how much background fear and anxiety come out of this constant and nonstop pressure of the forces of evil against the church. We, the decline of the church in the West. All kind of people freaking out about that. Um, Not just in numbers, really, but people are so afraid that as the church declines that we will lose our social power in the world or that we are losing our social power in the world. We are no longer the norm, but now we are the freaks. We are the outcasts. We are the weirdos who believe in that ancient patristic mythology. And people are afraid of that. People are afraid of losing their power in the culture. And, and uh, combine that with the scandals in the church, the internal attacks of evil on the church. And that affects all of us. We all feel the fallout from that as people now associate the church with, pre- with, with predatory sexual practice or... or um, money schemes or whatever whatever it is that are scan- that's scandalous in the church and that causes us to be afraid because we're afraid we'll lose our reputation in the church or re- our reputation in the world. Uh, <clears throat> and, and then there's our kids. <laughs> I mean, we spend a lot of like time worrying about what's going to happen with our kids. For those of you who have kids, you look down, you know, you look in the future, you look 15, 20 years in the future and you're thinking, my gosh, what is the world going to be like in 15, 20 years? And we're terrified for our children. And all of that fear and all of that anxiety, uh, one of the motivations why evil is constantly attacking the church is to cause us to experience that fear and experience that anxiety so we're thrown off base. Uh, so, and that ends up causing... Um, uh, strife and division in the church was exactly what the devil wants. I mean, he wants to destroy the church. But in the meantime, he wants to throw us into an uproar of anxiety and fear from this constant pressure of attack. That's the reality we live in. However, Jesus says the number one thing, who knows the number one thing Jesus says in the Gospels? The thing he says more than anything else is, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. And this, this passage, it gives us a small peek into the immensity of the power of God that helps us to, to understand, okay, Jesus, you've got this and we don't need to be afraid. That's the second point. The second point is that the reason we don't need to be afraid is because God is in perfect control. And I mean perfect control. Here's a... Here's a, here's a a bad analogy, or it's going to fall a little bit short, but it's from Harry Potter, and so I'm going to use it. Uh, <laughs> got to, right? Got to. So at, the end, at the end of the Harry Potter stories, I'm not going to tell everything about it for any of you who have not seen it. I don't want to make it too much of a spoiler, but at the end of the Harry Potter series, Harry has to face off 
with the evil wizard Voldemort. And Voldemort has been waiting for his chance to kill Harry Potter. But what he doesn't know is that when he kills Harry Potter, he's actually killing a vital part of himself. And this has all been set up by the forces of good to cause Voldemort, the evil wizard, to participate in his own destruction. And that's a, that's a small like an analogy that shows a little bit about how God is so powerful that he is actually able to use the very best efforts of evil against itself to accomplish his plan. How? Let me show you. Let's recap a little bit in this story, okay? Let's go back to chapter 4. In chapter 4, or chapter 3 and chapter 4, the, the whole book of 1 Samuel starts out talking about how the priesthood was, had become so corrupt that they were taking bribes from people, they were stealing the offerings, the very best of the offerings they were taking for themselves. There was all kinds of sexual immorality in the church. It was like, you know, all the same scandals that we see today was happening at the temple in Shiloh, which is where the temple was earlier on in chapters 3 and 4. And Eli was the high priest and his sons were uh, under him and then all the priests were participating in that crazy corrupt system where the church had become so corrupt they were just preying on everybody and and what did God say what did God come down to say at, to Eli at that time he said this this is what he said would happen he said behold the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house The only one of you who I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all of the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That's what just happened. Saul's best efforts at wickedness was actually foreseen by God, used by God, prophesied by God, the very best efforts of Saul to be evil, God was able to use to fulfill his own perfect will and his own perfect plan by purging his church. And that's not to say that all of the priests of Nob were all evil men we don't know. Maybe some of them he just took home, but that corrupted priesthood He wiped out and he did it with what someone thought was evil against God. That's power. I mean, that should tell us something right away. It should tell us us that God has the right to purify his church any time he wants. Amen? I mean, that may affect us when he does that. I am convinced he is doing that now in the West. I think we have become so our, our idols of social power, uh, our idols of political power become so out of control that he is stripping us of those so that we will be forced to lean into his power again and that is for our good. And he has the right to purge us any old way he wants to. It's going to be uncomfortable at times but it's always under his protection. It's always for our good. But there's something even more he does here that, that uh, 
it's, it's easy to miss if you, don't, if you don't look really close. There is a quiet handoff between Saul and David that happens in the text. What does Saul do? Saul becomes so enraged and so overwhelmed with his own paranoia and sin that he purposefully annihilates all of the priests of Nob, which is the last chance of him to have any kind of connection with the divine. And so he has, by his own hand and wickedness, struck against himself as well by annihilating any possible connection that he could have with God. And in the midst of that, God takes one of those priests with the ephod, which was how God communicated with his people, and shuffles him from out of that deck and puts him in David's pocket. So from this point forward, the whole story is Saul groping in blindness and David having the word of the Lord and the illumination of God and the help of God in everything he does. And that is the deciding factor. doesn't matter how much power Saul has from this point forward. does not matter what Saul does. What matters is that David has been given by God divine help and, and revelation and connection and communication with God. And that is the most important thing. And that's what we have. That's what we have. It doesn't matter what the world who's raging against us has. It doesn't matter what the devil is able to do in attacking us from the outside. It doesn't matter what the devil is able to do in infiltrating the church and attacking us from the inside. We don't have to trip about any of that because we have God's word. We have, he's told us all of this. All of these pictures are given to us so that we wouldn't be in the dark about what's happening world wants us to think you're being shut down. But that's not what's happening. They're being shut down. Doesn't look like it yet. But we can read through the text and we know that God is working in this crazy quiet power that's almost unseen in the world. But he is causing his perfect will to be done. And nobody can stop that. Nobody. That's the kind of protection that we have as God's people. There's this, um, David wrote a psalm about this. Last week we talked about David had written two psalms. It was kind of his official commentary on what all went down. David wrote, wrote Psalm 52 talking about this, about the evil, either Doeg or maybe Saul, how evil men tried to attack God and how futile that is. He said, He says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And then he says, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Saying God set him up. He rejected God, rejected good, fought against the Lord, tried to annihilate the priesthood, and all of it in that, he told 
fell into God's plan and perfect will and control and power in such a way that he didn't do nothing but complete the will of God and destroy himself. That is the crazy power that God has protecting us as his people. David says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever and I will thank you forever because you have done it. I wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. He is perfectly sheltered and nourished and protected by the Lord God Almighty. And what is it that the Lord has done? The Lord, through quiet power, is able to comfort and save his people. Look at, how, look at how God saves the entire messianic mission in this particular story. Verse 20. He says, But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. <laughs> one guy. One guy. No angelic army to the rescue. No massive power. Just one guy, the thinnest thread. You almost wouldn't even see it. You could miss it if you're not paying attention. It's this one thread continues the priesthood into the future, shifts the power into David's hands because he's connected with God through this priest and continues the plan of salvation. Just one guy. And you know what? God does that all over the place. The whole Bible is filled with these stories of it's down to the wire, it's total disaster, there's no possible way that God's gonna, that, that good is going to win, come out of this situation. And then at the last minute, God goes, whoosh, 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 and saves the day from like, from what, think of Noah. Noah is the last righteous man on earth. Everyone else has turned against God and hates God. God waits for the very last. All they have to do is kill Noah and they stop the whole messianic plan of salvation. Right at the end, Noah's, and, uh, Noah builds a, an ark and God does his thing <laughs> and he brings judgment on the world and he saves this one guy and his family through the judgment. Happens all the time. Abraham Everybody's forgotten about God. Abraham and his father are worshiping the moon in the city of Ur. They've completely forgotten who they are. God comes and pulls him out of pagan idolatry and says, makes these promises to him. And it's one guy and his family in the whole world. God's starting his whole plan of salvation that we now see through the text panning out. Uh, in the Davidic kings. There's a, there's a period of time when one of the Davidic kings dies and his mother, this woman named uh, Athaliah, she declares herself to be queen and tries to kill all of the Davidic descendants, which would have effectively snuffed out the messianic line, thwarted God's plan, except one niece or one aunt grabs one of the kids and runs with him and hides him. And Joash becomes king. One guy. It all came down to this one guy. 
happens all over the place. God like sets it up so it looks like evil is gaining the victory and then right at the last minute he switches it up and what it turns out is that everything they just did played into his hands and he comes out victorious having his will done. And all of those things are the picture of the greatest surprise reversal in history at the cross. This is what Peter, this is what Peter says in his sermon at Acts 2. He's talking to the people who were responsible for putting Jesus to death, extending mercy to them, and grace, offering them grace and salvation. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God meant this all the time. This was plan A. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The spirit of Antichrist meant to, to finally and completely snuff out the messianic line in God's plan of salvation by killing the Messiah himself. And in that moment of weakness, the very best that evil could throw out against God, God turned it around and used it against him. And Jesus' death became the very thing that brought life to all of God's people. Jesus died, took the penalty of our sins upon himself, freed us from the guilt of our sin. His righteous life is given to us. We now stand in presence of God as beloved children, covered in the righteousness of Christ, and all because God was so powerful and so in control of every single cause and effect relationship that moves in and throughout the earth past present and future that he could set that up to let evil use its own evil against itself and be the thing that brought life and salvation to all people that is power that's power that is power and the greatest the greatest thing is that's our team that's our team that's the team we're on god who did that is our father, and we are his kids. And if that's true, what can hurt us? You know, that, God, that means that God is continually, even now, in all the things that happen that we think are so bad, and, and many of them are, many of them are really bad. I get that. Many things cause deep sorrow in this world, but we see that and we think to ourselves, Where's God? He's not watching. He's let me go. Uh, I must have done something really wrong and he's punishing me. What this tells us is that in all of those things, in everything that happens, everything that happens, whether it's tragedy, whether it's uh, manifestations of antichrist, whether it's the decline of the church, whether it's scandal in the church, whether it's loss of our power in the, in, this, in the society, whether it's the small things of our bills or our careers or the relationships that you so desperately want, all of those things are all part of that complex. They're all part of those things that God is working when that power that he has to make evil crush in on itself and good prevail, his name glorified, and us, his people, sheltered and protected and nourished through this evil age and into the next. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...
the stunning beauty of your word. We thank you for the power that you have put on display, Lord, to encourage us, to comfort us, so that we would know that nothing that happens is outside of your control, so that we could know that even though you may ask us to weather some storms, even those storms are going to work for our good, that you have promised not to save us from the world, but you have promised to save us through the world, and even in the through, there is blessing. So we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that and to be encouraged by it, that you would change our whole paradigm, our whole attitude about what happens in the world and have it all filtered through the central reality that we know that you are our Father, uh, that you are all-powerful, and you are in perfect control of everything that happens. And help us rejoice in that, Lord. Help us to feel encouraged. Help us to rest in that as we wait for you to come and take us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.